Man, it is good to be with you today, Radiant. Um, the room is packed. Wow. <laughs> um, I can't believe I'm going to start this way, but when I was in junior high and high school, there was a, a quote on Monty Python <laughs> that said, and now for something completely different. And that's what this Sunday is. Uh, this Sunday is a completely different Sunday. If you're visiting with us, I mean, usually we're opening God's Word, diving in and mining it out. In fact, the last two weeks, uh, we've been in Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2, and that's really what is driving what today is about. Next Sunday, we're in Genesis 3, and then we're going to be in Psalm 139. And we're in this growing forward series, and we're beginning by looking back and kind of uh, girding ourselves to uh, where we come from, whose we are, and what all of this is about and yet after Genesis 1 and 2, I wanted to take a Sunday and risk it by uh, talking with you about, well, I'm a seven-day creation guy. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I just want to talk with you about it today. Uh, why, why that this Sunday? Well, because um, God's work of creation absolutely fascinates me. Um, my past, I was uh, in lay work for 20 years. A uh, big part of that job was R&D and developing, inventing medical devices, and I love to create. That's just in me. That's the house I grew up in. My house growing up is like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, if you ever saw that movie. It was totally my house literally growing up. And I love that. And the fact that God created all things, just it, it fascinates me and fascinates me even how God did it. So why do this? Because I'm fascinated by it. Second reason, and this is really a very big reason why I'm doing this this Sunday. I'm doing this this Sunday is because subjects like this aren't talked about very well. I don't know if you've noticed, but even a subject like this, people have a tendency just to get mad about it. And uh, the dogma flies, and um, I think it's kind of sad. I really do. Um, subjects like this uh, just have a way in our day and age of, of getting to be about proving a position. And I want for you to know, I'm not here today to prove a position. I'm just not. And if that frustrates you, well, get over it. Um, I'm not here to prove a position. I'm not here to do a point-counterpoint. I didn't go this week and get on Answers in Genesis or on the various websites or information and find out what's the best points to prove across why I'd be a seven-day and go point I'm just, not today. Today literally is about, hey, we just, I just preached through Genesis 1 and 2, and I'm a seven-day creation guy, and uh, I'd love to just share with you why for me. That's it. I may not be the great scientist, I may not be the great debater in things, but I do know this, I can share my life. And so I just want to do that with you today, and hopefully in this, it'll foster conversation and to actually foster respect on the whole in having these kinds of conversations. So a couple items with that uh, uh, of clarity as we get in. Whether Genesis 1 and 2 is talking about a seven 24-hour days, uh, six days of creation and uh, one day of God doing a Shabbat rest. Uh, I call it seven-day creation because we as Americans, we kind of toss out the rest part, but that was part of it. And so I vote rest uh, in that. Um, whether you're a seven 24-hour days or creation over millions and billions of years, this subject, it is a pencil issue. 
It is a theological pencil issue. It is not a pen issue. And I say that because whatever your view is on this, it does not change the truth of the gospel. It just doesn't. And, and I'll tell you, sometimes I want it to be a pen issue because I have some concerns uh, uh, coming out of some of the, the, the viewpoints of it. But when it comes right down to it, this is a subject that does not change the truth of Christ to the cross, rose from the dead, died for sins, salvation available through the work of Christ. Uh, so that's an item of clarity. Uh, another item of clarity I think it's just important for me to say, if you're a theistic evolutionary viewpoint, if you have uh, intelligent design, I just don't like that word, it makes it seem like God's human intelligent design, a theistic viewpoint, evolution, where it's millions and billions of years. I may disagree with you, but I do not believe that you love the Lord less or you love his word less. I just don't. And I want for you to know that. And we can have a conversation about this in the kind of a way, because I'll just say it this way. If you know Christ is your savior, and you have a different viewpoint on this, and one day when we're in heaven together, one of us will be able to say, neener, neener, I was right. <laughs> but we are with the Lord in eternity because of the gospel forever, okay? And it's just really important to have the whole picture in view there. So we can, so can we agree that uh, we're here to love the Lord, okay? Even if we can disagree on something. I'll before getting into some of my thoughts on it, a few interesting Gallup poll things. I, I grabbed a hold of the 2017. Um, it varies up and down a little bit as it moves along, but 2017, the American population, 76% of Americans held to a theistic view of creation. In other words, God created, however that was. 21% held to an atheistic view. By the way, if you're an atheist or an agnostic in this room, I'm so glad you're here. I really am. I'm so glad you're here. And uh, we love you, and uh, I appreciate you even listening. Of the 76% that hold a theistic view, uh, this is interesting, 38% on the total have theistic evolution. 38% uh, have theistic seven-day creation. That means that if we were to apply that to this room, it's very likely that half of the people in this room hold to a theistic view of evolution and uh, half hold to a theistic seven-day view of creation. And, and I think that's just an interesting thing to keep in mind, and that's very possibly what is in this room today. So lastly, uh, three texts of Scripture, I think, to keep in mind as we go through this is one, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? Okay? Um, the Bible clearly starts there. That's the, literally the starting point of the Bible. Secondly, I'll make reference here in just a minute as well, Deuteronomy 29, 29. It talks about how the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. That means there are secret things that we don't know about, and that's okay. It's okay to leave some things in God's hands because he knows. And yet, that is a, let's mine it for what is revealed. And I'll add kind of along with that, Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is made plain to them. That means that there are some things that we don't know about God. And I'm okay with that 
because God is God and I have a small mind and I can only handle so much and God knows that about us. Um, so let me kind of move from there and here are five thoughts on seven-day creation and really why I'm a seven-day guy. There are other thoughts I have on this, um, but uh, I'm, I'm going to go with these five today. By the way, I've noted them as thoughts, not as proofs. I'm, I'm just going to tell you there is a reason why pastors in my role oftentimes don't do this kind of conversation because of the culture of we can't respect one another. But I trust that I do it. I'm risking it today. And, but I trust that we'll be able to do that. So here's my thoughts, my thoughts. Five of them. First one, I begin with this, the centrality of the text the centrality of the text. One of our core values as a church is foundationally scriptural. Foundationally scriptural. And that carries with it the concept that it is about scripture first, scripture last, scripture most. This is the supreme truth over all, quote, truths. Another way to say that is God's word has the first say, the final say, and the full say. This is my starting point in this conversation. This is my starting point. And 2 Peter 1.3, as well as 1 Timothy 3.16 and 17, but uh, 2 Peter 1.3 talks about how God's word provides us everything we need for life and godliness. You know, there is not a single thing to do life and to live life for the Lord that is not here. And I say that because that's what God said in it, 2 Peter 1.3. But that also includes in it that it doesn't tell us everything we might want to know. I'm kind of hitting on that subject. There are just things that are okay for us to wonder in. And that even includes thinking about and pondering about and interacting about. But when it comes right down to it, there are times where it's like, yeah, I don't know the final deal in that. But we can ponder it and we can think about it, but it goes to the text. Again, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So the idea is the centrality of the text. The text is not telling us to stay away. The text is telling, telling us to mine it. It is inviting us into the text because God has everything we need for life and godliness right here, but enter it knowing this. There are some things that uh, frankly don't matter in the whole scheme of things but they can be interesting and they can be helpful in us thinking about who God is. It, I would say it this way. It's about mining God's word rightly. I am concerned about this subject that, um, that viewpoints squeeze scripture and science is applied to scripture rather than scripture driving how we understand science. Uh, rightly mining God's word means understanding it grammatically, historically, and contextually. That means that when we enter God's word, we are really trying to understand what was the authorial intent, theologically, as they call it. 
So when Moses wrote it, when David wrote it, when John wrote it, when, 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 when uh, Paul wrote text, we're understanding that God is working through them. He's working through them to write down exactly what God wants. So the words matter, the phrases matter, the genres matter. And so in all of that, that matters in how we understand the text. We don't proof text things. We don't grab a verse that fits an idea and we go there. The text is the point we have to arrange ourselves to it to understand it rightly. We don't make the text say what we want it to say. And I'm not talking about this, this subject alone. I'm talking about all subjects as we dive into God's word. Grammatically, the language, the grammar, it matters. Historically, listen, this was written in years ago, and we need to understand the language matters and how even the timing of things matter. Contextually, even the context of the writer at the time. Uh, uh, just as an example, Paul wrote the book of Philippians uh, through the Spirit of God working through him, penned down by Paul, uh, fully God's word. And yet in that, Paul is writing it from prison to the church in Philippi, who is under persecution. And he gives the Philippians 4.13 verse, you know the verse that's always commonly written on the face of football players? You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Hey, understanding that contextually, it's not talking about you can score the touchdown. It's not talking about you can do anything you set your mind to. Context, it's saying even in persecution, Verses right before, you can be content in persecution. This is what I'm talking about where it's important to go to the text, understanding the text, not me making the text work for me. In that hermeneutic of the text of Genesis, account of creation, when Moses was writing it, and Moses wrote down day, the word yom in Hebrew, well, what did he mean? What did he understand it to be? And I'm just going to say, for me, for me, on a first read, on the core read, on the bare read of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, grammatically, historically, contextually, I just can't get away from, it just is what it is. It, it just reads as it reads. You know, there's, there's the discussion of, yeah, but Psalm 94, Psalm 90, verse 4, it says that a thousand years are like a yom, a day unto the Lord. I get it, but, but then we, 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 we lose the fact that every time the word yom is used with a numeric associated with it, every time in Scripture it's referring to a 24-hour day. And so sometimes we want to grab certain things, but we don't want to grab the whole of the thing. And that concerns me about being people who are, where the text is the central thing. I don't move it to fit. It is the supreme thing that everything fits under. Plus, what does other scripture say about the Genesis accounts? Well, let me just throw out a few. Ezekiel 28, 13, it notes Eden, the Garden of Eden. It's talking about it as though it's real, not an allegory. Hosea 6, 7 talks, says, uh, but like Adam, they transgressed. I think he's talking about, a, he's understanding a real Adam, a real transgression, and real people that he's talking to. Mark chapter 10, verse 6, this is a fascinating one. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and they shall become one flesh. Not only does it have the carry in the one flesh, not only does it have male and female, but it also has the from the beginning of creation. And the question is, is from that, the beginning of creation of Adam and Eve, or is that from the beginning, Adam and Eve were there soon? 
they're all things to ponder. Here's some more. Luke chapter 3. Dr. Luke and his genealogy of the line of Jesus, you know, where the, you read the passage and you come to all the list of names and you jump over. You know what I'm talking about there? I do the same. Uh, by the way, Adam is in that list as well as David is in the list. David is a real guy. By the way, Joseph, uh, uh, you know, Jesus' is, uh, we'll call him human um, stepdad. Uh, Joseph was real, and he's there, and Adam is in there. By the way, I'll note also is Noah in there, and I'll just note this as well. Ma- uh, Matthew 24, 37, Jesus understands Noah and the flood to be real and not allegorical. Uh, I'll add Romans 5, 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. It talks about the transgression of Adam, and that, that's a big one. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. That'll come in later. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as Adam... For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I think it's talking about a real Adam. 2 Corinthians eleven three. As Eve, let's not leave her out of it. As Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning. That's interesting. In the New Testament, it's talking about a real Eve, a real serpent, a real deception. 1 Timothy 2.13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's interesting. It also talks about uh, in 1 Timothy uh, 2 that Adam and Eve were deceived. Hebrews 4.4, God rested on the seventh day. Uh, Is it allegorical? Is it for real? I think all of these begin adding up. And then Revelation 12.9, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, who leads the world astray. As I look at Scripture speaking into Scripture and Scripture understanding Scripture, for me... It compounds to the point where I just go, it looks to me like scripture sees it all as real, not metaphors, not not allegory, but real. And I think the text standing alone, for me, I can't get away from 24 hours, but Doug, millions and millions of years, we'll get there. I think Adam and Eve are real. I think there was a real side surgery that went down on Adam. I think there was a real walking of Eve down the aisle. I think there was a real call to become one flesh. I think there was a real serpent. I think there was a real tree. And I think there was a real fruit, whatever that was, that had to go down. That's me. That's me. Um, Centrality of the text. So I think there is a theistic creation, regardless. Secondly, the conflict of the chart, the chart. You know that chart that shows the monkey to the man? I literally can sit here. I just have this weird mind. I'm so visual. I can literally picture right at this moment in fourth grade class, Mrs. Denny, and over on the wall right over here, there was that chart. I remember as a kid being fascinated by that. For me, that chart, I could see that. It goes from the Artipithecus to the Homo habilis, to the Homo erectus, to the Homo sapiens, and a few in between there. And I can see the theory in the chart, and I can see it being drawn in, and even as a kid at my grandparents, in National Geographic, where that was there, and and thinking that through. But my conflict is the full picture of evolutionary theory on that picture is absent. It is far broader than that. It is far more complex than that. Evolutionary theory includes cosmic evolution, stellar evolution, chemical evolution, planetary evolution, organic evolution, macroevolution, and microevolution. And each of them are necessary. 
In fact, Darwin in Origin of the Species said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. And yet the interesting thing is, is I'll make mention here, okay, maybe we'll, we'll uh, I actually think there is microevolution, the changes, uh, I can even say, look at the races from Adam and Eve. But when you go to the other six, Science can't explain it. It just doesn't. I'm just, go look. And it's not one chart. I can get one chart. It's actually seven charts. And seven charts become crazy complex to where I think you begin asking the question, how can that be? Like on the chart, uh, let's, let's give it microevolution. The variations form within the same kind. I question whether it's the same kind, but let's just give it that. Macroevolution is animals and plants change from one type into another. How does that happen? Organic evolution, life begins from inanimate matter. How does inanimate matter move into living life? And I would say this, the theistic evolutionists would say, God. And I'm like, boom, preach. I understand exactly what you're saying on that. Because science alone without a God like that it can't, they can't prove it. Can't. That's just the fact. And so the theistic evolutionist answers it, the unexplained jumps, as God in it. And I get that. But then I come back to, but if God could do the unexplained, why can't God do the unexplained in seven days? Seriously. Just that lingers in my mind. The centrality of the text, the conflict with the chart. Third, the conversation of the death. I've done this so pastoral, haven't I? You know, things move in words. I'm sorry, I'm laughing at myself. The conversation of the death. Evolutionary theory requires millions and billions of years of death. It requires it. Death of cells, death of plants, death of animals, death of apes. And I would even suggest the death of homo sapiens. Atheistic uh, theology um, would go that you have to have people before Adam and Eve, but they wouldn't believe that, so I'll just leave that as that. I understand the scripture to teach that sin brought death. That before sin, I would say, how could there be death? Genesis 1, on the seventh day, God, after six declaration of creation being very good, and by the way, if there's gap theory or day theory or various theories that are in there, even with theistic evolution, where in there there's these gaps and, and movement of time. If at these points of time, God goes, that's good, and yet there's death, even if it's plant or animal death, I'm having a hard time with that. Because death is horrible. I understand death to be an evil result of sin. And how can God declare even plant death or animal death good in some way? And then we get to the seventh day and God declares, declares everything is very good and, and yet there's death in that evolutionary theory. And then in Genesis 2, God forms Adam and says, in that day uh, you will eat from the tree of good, uh, in the day that you eat from the tree of good and evil, you will surely die 
And then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, and and God not only states chaos coming out of sin, but that they will return to the ground to die. But if there's death, why does death need to be declared? There's various ways of answering that. Well, it was just talking about animal death. It was just talking about plant death. It wasn't talking about spiritual death, or there's just, or or it was inherited from the very first living things on earth, which I I still don't quite understand that one. For me, it's a problem. It's just a problem. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And I just go, how can a holy, righteous God, even if it's plant death or some kind of animal death, how can God go good when death exists? Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Evolutionary theory requires millions and billions of years of death. And I'm just going to tell you, I can't get over that one theologically. I, I, I can't, and I mean this, and I've tried, but I can't. The centrality of the text, the conflict of the chart, the conversation of the death, forth, the confidence in the years. But Doug, millions and billions of years, I get it. And there is something daunting about millions and billions of years. There is something that in that vast amount of time that all what is unexplained can fall into this vat of, well, somehow it can happen after that much time. That concerns me. It's kind of a default to, well, time. But, but let me talk about two, two things with this. One, carbon dating, and two, a TV show. Carbon dating... Um, some of you this, some of you will know this better than me, but uh, I do understand this component of it. Carbon. Carbon is, carbon is, is an abundant element that is in our atmosphere, it's in the earth, it's in the oceans, it's in every living creature. C12 is the, is the uh, most common isotope, while only about one in a trillion are C14. C14 is altered through cosmic radiation, and it forms a new isotope called radiocarbon. It takes 5,730 years for radiocarbon to break down in its half-life. That's what half-life is. So after 5,730 years, half of the radiocarbon remains. And then the next 5,730 years, the next half remains, and down and down and down and down and down. And, and that's how uh, a carbon dating is calculated. It's calculated on ratios of that, of that carbon, that radiocarbon in the living entity, as well as the, the ratio of carbon, uh, uh, what is it? radiocarbon uh, in the atmosphere. And both together have to be calculated. And, and, and I come down here to this place where I just go, but how do you know for sure millions and billions of years ago? I'm serious about that. How, how can we know what the ratios are millions and billions of years ago? Because that is actually the ratios structure upon which uh, the dating is Applied. I'm not even bringing in the conflict of dating issues that have occurred. But, but how do you know? And, and I don't mean this as, 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 a, as a joke. I mean this seriously, just for me personally. I go, we can't even forecast with accuracy the weather a year from now. Let alone a month from now. Let alone a week from now. 
And it's amazing what we have been able to do to calculate movements and the multiple uh, uh, charts that read the weather and do the forecast. It's amazing, but we, let's, let's be honest about it. We can't forecast it with accuracy, let alone a year from now, but somehow we know exactly what was the atmosphere, radiocarbon in the atmosphere was millions and billions of years ago. I'm just saying for me, I'm just a small dude. But honestly, for me, I, I'm having a hard time kind of got to be a lot of faith in that. And then the TV show. A few years ago, I'm watching a show on the History Channel, and uh, I'm kind of a dork with some of this stuff because it was a show that was about, it was like six worldwide catastrophic events and what would happen. I'm all in on that, man. I'm all in on that. I thought aliens would be on it, but no, it wasn't. So it included like a meteorite strike, a meteor strike or worldwide volcanoes, or earthquakes. And then it got to, what if there was a worldwide flood? Please understand this, it was not a Christian show. It was not approaching it from anything about that. It was not religion in any kind of a way. It was talking about it as pure science. And then in that, they're talking about a worldwide flood, and this guy gets on, and I was going to actually go get it and play it, but I just didn't want to do that because then it seems like it's point-counterpoint, and that's not my interest here today. And yet in it, we have a PhD geologist who gets on, and he says this, if a catastrophic worldwide flood took place, all carbon dating would be null and void. I'm just saying this. I don't know if that's true or not. I am just saying the fact that that was said. And yet the confidence that's put in something where then all of a sudden a shot out of the blue comes like that. I'm like, if I remember correctly, after Genesis 1, 2, and 3, like right around, what is it, Genesis 6, 7, like there's a flood. For me, for me, that was a huge moment. Not of, it's fact, it's proven, but just like, whoa. I've never heard that before. Why? Why haven't I heard that before? If you differ with me on this, I don't think you love the Lord less or you love his word less. We just differ. And that's okay. All right? That's okay. I'm not mad about this. I actually love this stuff. I can totally geek out in this. But then there comes a point in time in it where it's like, but wait a second, this is a pencil issue, this is not a pen issue. And if you have a different view on this than me, I love you and we can serve the Lord together. And that kind of leads me to my fifth item. And this is for everyone, the concern of the pride. I could call it the concern of the dogma on both sides. From my experience, and I acknowledge that, you do not build your life out of experience. You build your life out of 
truth. But I am saying it this way. From my experience, there tends to be a lack of humility in the conversations about this kind of a subject. And it concerns me. And so I lovingly say, dear theistic seven-day creationists like me, there can be a tendency where our dogma comes across as pride. And that is not winsome. I can say, dear theistic evolutionist, your dogma can come out like pride, and it's not winsome. And I'll even say, dear atheist, your dogma can come out prideful, and it is not winsome. And we need to understand what are pen issues and what are pencil issues. And this is a pencil issue. And I bring this up because if we are going to be a people in a church that permeates the west side of the hope of the gospel, we need to understand what are the issues that relate to the hope of the gospel and what are pencil issues that fall under that. If you love the Lord and you know Christ is your Savior... God created all things, period. Agreed? No. Ultimately, it's about the hope of the gospel. Days of creation view, I'm not willing to die for it. View on end times, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, amil, I'm not willing to die for the view. I vote pre-trib because I want out early. <laughs> Music preference? Um, it's not a pen issue. Bible translation? It's not a pen issue. And I could go on understanding what are pen issues and what are worthy to die for and what are worthy to humbly interact with is an important reality if we're to be people who permeate our culture with the hope of the gospel. And I will tell you this, genuinely authentic, I want this one to be a pen issue. I do. Because I'm concerned that what is happening is science is being put into Scripture as opposed to Scripture interpreting science. And that's a big deal for me. But when it really comes down to it, here's the story that matters. Would you turn your Bibles to Colossians 1, please? And we're going to finish there. Trust me, I can't leave the day without reading some text. Here's the big deal. There is a God who created all things. I understand it to be a triune God. Triune God that whether created in millions and millions of years or whether created in seven days, that God created all things. You and I are here because of God. You are not here by a random accident. 
that God, when he knew, when he saw that Adam and Eve bit it, that God did not say, bag it. Instead, that God said, we're going to do something about this. And so the second person of the Trinity in Genesis chapter 3, we learned that one is going to come who is going to be dealt a bruising blow by Satan, but will deal Satan a lethal blow. We come to see that in the story of, uh, of the gospel, that that is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Hey, virgin birth, deity of Christ, to the cross, resurrected from the dead, conquering sin, pen issues. And the one who created us, the one who saw us sin before him, is the one that went to the cross, is the one that rose from the dead, is the one that is going to return. And this is not some God that is out of touch. This is not some God that is vague and vast and like, yeah. This is a God that is intimately, intricately involved. And I show you here, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, it starts with he. The context of the text is the he is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. Did you just hear that? For, they call it the ontological work of the Trinity. Jesus Christ is the one who did the work of creation. For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile him to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, the ones he's writing to, the believers in Colossae, that he might present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Did you just see that? Not shifting from the what? The hope of the gospel that you heard, it is not saying that you by not shifting from a view of creation. It doesn't say that. It's the hope of the gospel that you, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Hey friend, know this, the one that created all things is the one that was promised who had come. God did not uh, 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 job out the task of going to the cross to pay the payment of the sim to someone who lost like a card game. Someone didn't get like the last number and they're the ones, well, I guess I lost, so I'm going to go. No, the one who created all things is the same one who came to die on the cross for you and me. That is intimate, that is personal, that is direct, that is God in the flesh, that is deep in this. And he is the one who rose from the dead 
And he is the one who is coming back again. And he is the one who says, as many as receive me, to them he will give the right to become children of God. So this conversation, I think it's an important conversation. I think it's a very cool conversation. But in everything that I just said, it is not based upon how many days you think it took. And we can have the conversation. And we can do it lovingly and respectfully and joyfully and walk out of it all pointing to the hope of the gospel. More of that in us. And might we be a light to our world, a delight to our world. People who know what are pencil issues and what are pen issues, who mind scripture, who do not force ideas into scripture, and I'm not implying anything there, but on anything, not that kind of people. We start there and we work our way from there. Together? All right. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the time together and thank you for the time we have here just to marvel in you. I pray that's really what's happened here. (laughs) I'm like the worst person to try and explain how you did things. (laughs) And yet it's a mystery. And yet you invite us to consider out of it We should walk away awed by you. Lord, we're going to have those neener, neener moments in heaven together. And that's okay. But I pray that they would not deter the hope of the gospel conversation. So we adore you and we hold your name high. And we continue our prayer in song.